Good morning, Oceanside Sanctuary. It's good to be back with you again on this Sunday morning. We're going to continue our teaching series on the Sermon on the Mount. And this week, I'm excited because we get to delve into the beginning of the middle chapter of the Sermon on the Mount. If you remember Jesus's core teaching, everything that his ministry was based on, we can find in Matthew chapters 5 and 6 and 7. Over the last several weeks, We've been teaching out of Matthew chapter 5, really good and important foundational stuff to Jesus' ministry. But today, we are going to jump into chapter 6, where Jesus shifts gears a little bit and builds upon that foundation. Before we do, as always, I'm going to ask you just to take a moment. Let's center our hearts and our minds together. And then I want to share with you the text that we are reading today and give you some of my observations and invite you to share some of what you are noticing as well. Would you just pray with me? God, we thank you again for this day, wherever we are, at home or perhaps at work, our front porch or in our car, sitting at a desk or sitting on a couch, we pray, God, that wherever we might be tuning in, that you would help us to quiet our hearts and minds. Now, we would be able to read this text today, that we would be able to listen deeply to it, and that you would begin to speak life into our hearts, that we would continue our journey toward becoming people who are more like you each and every day. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, let's take a little bit of time here at the beginning just to talk about where we have been. What have we learned so far in our teaching series on the Sermon on the Mount? If you have your Bible with you, you can turn it to Matthew chapter 5. This is what we have really been going through for the last several weeks. Jesus begins his Sermon on the Mount with this provocative uh, beatitudes, this list of people who seem to be down and out, downtrodden, beaten down and broken. And he declares that because the kingdom of God, that is the power of God, has come into their lives, that now they are blessed in spite of their condition, that their fundamental condition has changed because God's power has brought something to them that has been denied to them for so long. And then he goes on to address those very same people, the people who are following him, those who were the down and out, the downtrodden, the beaten down, the forgotten. Those are the people that Jesus then calls the salt of the earth, the light of the world. He says the very people who seem to be least blessed or cursed the most are the people who are going to be those who are a blessing to the world. He says, in fact, that they are going to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. And if you are a person who considers yourself to be a follower of Jesus, then that's you too. That whatever your hardships in life, whatever it is that you have worked through, whatever wounds or trauma or rejection you have dealt with in your life, whatever hardship or suffering Jesus has called you to become a follower of him so that you can be among those who are salt and light in the world. And then he says that we, of course, will be the people who, whose righteousness exceeds that of the people that he calls hypocrites. And remember, we talked about how Jesus is not 
condemning Judaism. He is not condemning the Jewish faith. In fact, there at the beginning of Matthew chapter 5, he lifts up the Jewish faith as good. He says that he has come to uphold the law, that he has not come to take away one bit of the law, but rather to fulfill it. So he honors the Jewish faith. He honors Judaism. But then he rebukes those whose practice of Judaism is hypocritical. And he says that those who are in power in his day have become like hypocrites and that true followers of God will be people whose righteousness is genuine. It's not fake. It's not a mask that they wear. Rather, it is something that has integrity. And then Jesus launches into his fundamental teachings on spirituality. And if you remember, a few weeks back, we began to look at these teachings. And there are six of these sections that we've looked at in the last several weeks. They're sometimes called the six antitheses of Jesus because he uses this familiar construction where at the beginning of each of these six sections, he says something like, you may have heard it said this, but I say to you that. And Jesus uses this as a way to enter into a dialogue with the law and the commentary on the law that his followers have heard. And he uses this to really lay open, I think, the depths of the human heart. Jesus, if you remember, he addresses the most fundamental, the most foundational challenges and problems that we face as human beings. He begins with anger and contempt that leads to murder. And then he moves on to expound upon the idea of violence, to talk about sexual violence, the sexual violence that gets perpetrated by those who prey upon people with the way that they look at them, the way that they inappropriately touch them, or even the way that husbands break their covenants with their wives by dispensing with them in a casual way. Jesus calls all of this a kind of violence. And he says that all of these kinds of acts, whether it's anger or adultery or a dispensing with your wife because you are tired of her or breaking your promises, your oaths to people, or even last week as Alex taught, dealing with your enemies, that all of these things that are so wrapped up in our hearts, the, the traps and the pitfalls that we tend to slip into, Jesus says that all of these things are rooted in our desires. And that's the first thing that I really want to set before you today, is to suggest that the whole of Matthew chapter 5 is Jesus very expertly diagnosing the problem with the human condition. We tend to think that the problem with the human condition are all of those external issues, the actual physical violence, the, the killing, the, the, the murdering, the broken relationships, the broken promises, all of those things that the law of the ancient Hebrew faith speaks directly to. And Jesus says, of course, yes, those are problems, but those problems are rooted deep in the human heart. That physical violence begins with anger and contempt inside of us. That adultery and divorce, those broken relationships, begin with a coveting of power and control over other people. That broken promises and violence towards our enemies begin 
with the feelings that we have deep inside of us that we don't know how to control. And so with these six antitheses, I think Jesus really gives an expert diagnosis of what is wrong with the human condition. And here, I think, is a really key point that we have to make before we move on to chapter 6, because there are, I think, two mistakes that we tend to make in religious communities when we're wrestling with the challenges of the human condition. And the first mistake is one that Jesus is addressing, and that is to think that all human problems simply have to do with our external behavior. That all we have to do is act the right way on the outside, and that is really all that matters. And of course, there are entire Christian traditions that seem to be based on this idea that all we really have to do is modify our external behavior and we are fine. But I think there's an opposite mistake that tends to be made as well. And ironically, that mistake is often made after reading Matthew chapter 5. I hear it expressed all the time when people read these passages and they say, oh, Jesus is teaching that the real problem is simply our motives, that as long as our motives are pure, then everything else will be fine. And I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here at all. In fact, I think that is an equal mistake, that to simply believe that if you have the right intentions, the right attitude of your heart, then everything that you do on the outside doesn't really matter. And so we get people who, who hurt and harm and abuse other people all the time with their actions, but they try to excuse it by saying that they didn't intend to do something wrong, that it wasn't their desire to hurt somebody, that they had the right attitude, so therefore they should be left off the hook when they do something that's hurtful or harmful to another person. Instead, I think Jesus is avoiding both of these mistakes. And what Jesus is doing is he is bringing these two things together. Jesus isn't saying that what's more important than outward actions is our inward attitude. Jesus is saying there is no separating our outward actions from our internal attitudes. That ultimately what is inside of us, what our real desires are, will inevitably eventually come out. We hear this in all kinds of sayings of Jesus in other places in Scripture. A little later in the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to hear Jesus say that a good tree produces good, free, uh, good, tree produces good fruit and a bad tree produces bad fruit. Elsewhere, Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, our mouths speak. In other words, Jesus is saying that human goodness and human evil are deeply entrenched in the relationship between our heart's desires and our body's actions. That there is no separating the two and that if we want to deal with how we are acting in the world, either harmfully or helpfully, that we must dig deep into our hearts and discover what's actually there. And so I think the foundation that Jesus lays here in Matthew chapter 5 is that Christian spirituality, the way of following Jesus, is a spirituality of deep personal work. That it's not enough that we say that we act in the right way. And it's not enough to say that we have the right intentions. Instead, 
It takes deep personal work to discover what our desires truly are and to bring our desires into alignment with our practices. And that leads us, I think, very helpfully to Matthew chapter 6, because what Jesus is going to do now in Matthew chapter 6 is leave behind this foundational diagnosis of what is wrong with humanity, and he's going to move towards the problem with the solutions that we have come up with. And he does this by addressing the three core religious practices of Judaism at that time. He's going to talk about almsgiving, which is, of course, giving to people who are poor. He's going to talk about prayer, and he's going to talk about fasting. These are the first three things that Jesus is going to shift his attention to in Matthew chapter 6. And these are the three core religious practices of Jesus's faith. And so Jesus, we know, is affirming that religious practices can be an incredibly powerful way to begin to shape our desires. But what Jesus is going to do is point out that there are even pitfalls when it comes to our religious practices. So let's take a moment now and just read Matthew chapter 6, this first section of Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 4 together, and see what Jesus has to say about almsgiving. Matthew chapter 6 verse 1 says this, beware of practicing your piety before others in order to be seen by them. For then you have no reward for your Father in heaven. Now, we'll just stop there for a moment and say that what Jesus is saying to them is these pious practices, these religious practices, these spiritual practices that you engage in, be careful not to do them to be seen by other people, for then you won't get a reward from God. Now, this is interesting because right at the beginning, Jesus is going to diagnose the trouble with religious practices. And the trouble has to do with being seen by people on the one hand versus receiving a reward from God on the other. Now, let's take another look at the rest of these verses. Verse 2, he says this. So whenever you give alms, that is when you give money to those who are poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be praised by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. Now here Jesus gives us an example. He says, when you're going to engage in your spiritual practices, your religious practices, which are designed to help you shape your heart and shape your desires. He says there's a right way and a wrong way to do this. He says that when you give, for example, when you give to those who are poor, do not do it in a way that draws attention to yourself because apparently in Jesus's day, those who were hypocritical would go out to the synagogues and they would have people blow trumpets and they would make a big scene and announce that they were going to be giving money to the poor and then poor people would gather around and they would give money to those who were poor so that everybody could see what was going on. And Jesus tells us exactly what the problem with this is when he says in verse 2, they have received their reward. Jesus is just very plainly saying that the reward that they're looking for that the prize that they want to get by doing that 
is recognition and admiration from others in the crowd. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, they have it. And when you give money conspicuously to those who are poor, when you go out of your way to make sure that other people can see how generous and how incredibly kind and philanthropic you are, then that is obviously the reward you're seeking. There is a social benefit when other people see that you are giving to people who are in need. And it's not very hard, I think, to understand why that is. We live in a society today that is defined almost entirely by how wealthy we are, by how much money we have, by what our net worth is, by what zip code we live in, or by how big our house is, or how expensive our car is, by the clothes that we wear, by even the shoes that we buy, we are defined socially by where we sit on the economic ladder. People treat each other according to how they perceive each other's net worth. There is nothing, absolutely nothing in America that is more shameful than being poor. And that's saying a lot because it's shameful to be a lot of other things in our society. It's shameful, for example, to be a woman. It's shameful to be a person of color because of internalized and externalized white supremacy. It is shameful to be so many things, but there is nothing worse in the United States than to be perceived as poor because we have attached moral value and worth to how much money you have. If that's true, if it was true in Jesus's day, and if it's true now, that means if I have so much money that I can give it away to people on the streets, then that becomes another form of status for me. It's like wearing expensive shoes or driving an expensive car. And the more expensive my gift, the more obvious it is, obviously it is to everybody around me that I am that much wealthier. And so there's something to be gained when we give to those who are poor. What we're gaining is the admiration and respect and social standing of those who see what we do. Jesus says, this is a reward for giving to those who are poor. And I tell you the truth, if that's the reason that you give, that is all that you will get. And that, I think, is a, a very stern warning to those of us who are inclined to give charitably. Why am I giving this? How am I giving it? What am I getting directly in return? This illustrates something that I think is, is terribly important for us to understand when we're trying to understand Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. And, and that is something so obvious that... I hardly have to say it, but I'll, I'll say it anyway, and that is simply this, that money, money is the physical embodiment of power. That to have money is to have power. If I have money, however much money it is, it, it is literally in our economy, in our market-driven capitalistic society, money is my power, my ability to purchase something, to acquire something, to gain something. If I'm thirsty and I have money, I can quench my thirst. If I'm hungry and I have money, I can eat. 
If I want to be admired by other men and I have enough money, then I can buy a big house on a hill or a boat that floats off the edge of the shore so that everybody can see how impressively wealthy I am. Money is the tangible form of power. And when we don't have money, that means, of course, that we don't have power. And when we have money, that means we are very powerful. And so then, to give money away, any amount, to give money away means that I am literally giving up some measure of power. Now, it might not be very much. It might only be a few bucks. But that few dollars is a measure of power that I am giving up. If I get something in return for that, then it might be worth it because another form of power in our world, a less tangible form, a, a less spendable form of power is social capital. That is, the admiration and esteem and social status that being wealthy affords me. And so there's a kind of hidden and not so subtle calculus to charitable giving. That if I give X amount of dollars and I'm giving up a bit of power, am I getting enough power in return to justify it? This is the reward that Jesus says the Pharisees, the hypocrites will receive when they do their almsgiving in this way, in such a public and conspicuous way. Now, consider Jesus's final words on this passage. Because he says, of course, I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in verse 2. But in verse 3, he continues, but when you give alms. Now, he has diagnosed the problem. He has already said there is this religious practice. It's a good religious practice, but if we practice it in a broken way, then it ceases to be good. It becomes an even bigger problem for us. He's given us that diagnosis. Now he's going to give us a recommended correction. He says, verse 3, when you give alms, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your alms may be done in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, what's interesting about Jesus's solution, his recommendation is that he says the problem is that when we give, in order to gain power, in order to get a direct transaction, so that whatever power we give up, we at least gain something in return. Jesus says when we give in that way, all we do is continue to feed our broken desires. But Jesus tells, that if we, tells us that if we give in a different way, that if we give in secret, that is, if we give behind closed doors, or if we give anonymously, or if we give in such a way that our right hand doesn't know what our left hand is doing, if we give in such a way that other people don't see it, however we do that, that immediately breaks that problem. Because you see, what's happening there is we're giving away power and we're not getting anything in return. And that is a bitter pill to swallow for many of us. 
For many of us, the idea of giving money to another person or giving money to an institution or giving money to a cause is difficult. It's hard because, well, we may not have very much money to give in the first place. But even if we do have plenty of money to give, we are giving up our power. And Jesus challenges us to do that in a way that keeps us from getting anything in return. This, I think, makes sense because it restores the fundamental purpose of giving. The fundamental purpose, of course, of giving is to give power to those who don't have it. In other words, the point of giving is to redistribute power to take power from those who have a great deal of it and to move it to those who have very little of it. Giving is not something that we do in order to gain social status or social standing. Giving is not something that we do to make God happy even. Giving is something that we do because there are people in this world who do not have enough power to buy water to quench their thirst. They don't have enough power to feed themselves when they're hungry. They don't have enough power to make sure that they have a roof over their heads every night. They don't have enough power to make sure that they have a voice at the voting booth. They do not have enough power to take care of their own children, to live and thrive and own their own homes and businesses and benefit from their own labor. They do not have power. The point of giving is to give it to those who don't have it. And I think we have to end by simply saying this, that to give power to those who don't have it is an expression of love. In fact, I think that is exactly what Jesus is teaching us to do throughout the previous chapter, Matthew chapter 5. When Jesus tells us to not exert our anger in expressions of violence, but instead to be reconciled to those who have something against us, that is another form of empowering those who have been robbed of power. When Jesus tells us to to take measures against our own bodies rather than to cause sexual violence to another person, he is saying that we ought to give up our power and give it to those who have been victimized. When Jesus says that men ought to honor their relationships with their wives and not trade them in so easily when they get sick and tired of them, he is saying that we ought to empower those people who were disempowered in that society, namely women. Every teaching that Jesus has up to this point, I think you could argue, is an expression of giving power to those who are weak, empowering those who have been robbed of their own autonomy, their own ability to choose, their own ability to purchase, their own ability to govern their own lives in a way that is good. That is what it means to give to those who are in need. That's what it means to love. It means to give our power away without expecting anything in return and trusting that when we do that, 
trusting that when we give up what we have been holding on to so tightly, that God will reward us, that that goodness will come back to us in some way. My favorite expression of this comes from Isaiah chapter 58, this idea that when we give our power away to those who are weak, that that results in a kind of love that eventually comes back to us through God's own grace and goodness. That whole cycle of generosity, I think, is beautifully expressed in Isaiah chapter 58, verses 6 through 9. And I want to end by just reading this passage to you and asking you to reflect on how this is calling you to be the kind of person who could give and expect nothing in return. Isaiah 58, verse 6 says this, Is not this the fast that I have chosen to loose the bonds of injustice to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless into your house when you see the naked to cover them and not hide yourself from your own kin? Then, when we do these things, When we give up whatever power and goods that we have to those who don't, Isaiah says, Then your light shall break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up quickly. Your vindicator shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. And then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry for help. And he will say, here I am. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you again for these passages that challenge us to be people who are willing to take whatever power, whatever goods, whatever riches and wealth we have and to give that away to those who are in need. To do it in a way that does not directly benefit us. So we can be free so that we can be free of the yoke of control and power and instead rely on your grace and goodness instead. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey guys, what's up? It's Kaya and welcome back to the Oceanside Sanctuary. Um, If you are new, hi, hello, welcome. We are so excited to see you and have you here today. If you are a returning Oceanside Sanctuary member, we are just as excited to see you, whether you are in person or online. We are so excited that you guys found Oceanside Sanctuary and if you are a returning member are still joining us. Um, So if you are new to the Oceanside Sanctuary, we would love to get to know you. We would love to get to know you, talk to you, and figure out how you guys found the Oceanside Sanctuary. Simply just visit our website or scan the QR code. We have a live free planning meeting on Monday, October 11th from 6 p.m. to 7.30 p.m. And that's going to be right here at Oceanside Sanctuary. So make sure to RSVP for that uh, by visiting our website or scanning the QR code. We would love to see you there. Starting October 6th, uh, 6.30 p.m. on Zoom, this is going to be a six-week series. Uh, We have Outgrowing Immature Religion. Um, If you think you are outgrowing your religion with God, you don't feel as connected with Him, this 
might just be the group for you. Um, join us on Zoom for a six-week exploration of how healthy spirituality is designed to change and grow with us across our lifespan and how resting that change can amplify the fear, anger, and violence we too often see in more popular expressions of religion. Um, to RSVP for this six-week series uh, and course, visit bit.ly slash immature religion. Uh, we would love to see you there on Zoom. Our book club, woohoo book club. Um, Unsettling Truths, the ongoing dehumanizing legacy of the doctrine of discovery by Mark Charles. Um, this is Thursday, October 7th at 6.30 p.m. on Zoom. Um, join our monthly book club every first Thursday at 6.30 p.m. on Zoom. Um, you guys will be looking at the unsettling truths, the ongoing de dehumanizing legacy of the doctrine of discovery. Um, make sure to RSVP for that by clicking the QR, scanning the QR code or going to our website and that's going to be on Zoom. Finally, um, we are a 501c3 nonprofit and we rely on the gifts and donations of you guys. So simply just scan the QR code and you can donate that way. Or if you are in person, you can also scan the QR code. Or if you would like, there is a black box in the back and you can drop cash, check, even change in the box. Um, that's going to be all for the announcements today. I hope you guys have a wonderful rest of your Sunday and a beautiful week. Bye.